Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So now we're arriving at St. John's College here, which is the second largest college in Cambridge. And I am very sorry to St. John's that I have to express that, because St. John's and Trinity do have one of the most vicious rivalries in Cambridge. A lot of it boils down to the fact that St. John's was founded by, in part, John Fisher, a bishop of the Catholic Church during the reign of one King Henry VIII. And he was one of the more vocal bishops that told him he could not divorce his first wife, that it was a forbidden act according to the Catholic Church. So the king did what he did best. He had his head chopped off and divorced her anyway. Whoopsie-daisy. And so did, did Henry VIII found Trinity right next door to St. John's as a sort of thorn in the side? Almost certainly. That would be the perfect act of spite against the Catholic Church. Although it would also be an effect to say it might have just been a happy coincidence, as after all, King Henry VIII didn't really pay much attention to Trinity because five weeks after the founding of the college, he died. But it may have just been like a final hurrah before his passing. So what can you tell us that sort of sets St. John's apart? What, what makes it outstanding? Well, um, St. John's is often, at times, the most confrontational when it comes to sports. And it's gotten to the point now where often other colleges might often utter the chant, we'd rather go to Oxford than to St. John's, which seems to be the greatest insult you can say to someone at Cambridge. But in terms of St. John's itself, I think its most prominent feature is its grandiose style. There is no other college in Cambridge as grand, as glamorous, as almost regal in a kind of Hogwarts, Buckingham Palace sort of way. It is literally the quintessential image of Cambridge. It's the ultimate stereotype when you think of Cambridge. And the bridge, is that is that as similar to the one in Venice as everyone thinks? Well, no, not so much. The bridge of size at St. John's is only related to the one in Venice by name. Its actual official name was for a long time Newbridge because, well, that's what it was and no one could think of a better name than Newbridge. But then we had a very particular woman come to visit Cambridge after doing a big tour of Europe. And the only thing she seemed to remark on about Newbridge was how much she looks just like the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, Italy. Now, honestly, she'd either never been to Venice or she was blind as a bat because these two bridges have nothing really in common, except for the fact they are both covered bridges and they both go over water. That's really it. But no one's going to say that because she happens to be, well, Queen Victoria. And you do not correct Queen Victoria. What's wrong with you? (laughs) And just on the lawn in front of the Bridge of Sighs, in front of this picture postcard view of St John's, we have two more guests to join us. Welcome aboard. There are a few strawberries left. Uh, I'm Richard Samworth. Uh, I'm Professor of Statistical Science and Director of the Statistical Laboratory here in Cambridge. I'm also a Fellow of St John's. Hi, I'm Jenny Zhang. I'm a BBSRC David Phillips Fellow, which means I basically just started my own research group and I research artificial photosynthesis. So Jenny, tell me more about what you work on. So I work on a topic known as semi-artificial photosynthesis. Um, And essentially, to understand that, you have to understand what artificial photosynthesis is. So some people might know it as um, solar fuels production. So essentially, 
artificial photosynthesis is about using the processes um, in nature, so photosynthesis, absorbing light, the light energy from sunlight, and converting that into chemicals. So we're storing the light energy in the form of the bonds within chemicals so that we can use it to replace things like petrol, so use it as a fuel or um, some other type of use or to do useful chemistry in general. Right, so plants are basically turning sunlight into tasty dinner. That's what they subsist <laughs> of a lot of the time. Um, so if we can work out how to do that, it will unlock a whole lot of applications. Exactly, exactly. And it'll be one of the most sustainable ways of replacing petrol and having a carbon-free economy. So that would be wonderful. Um, but that's um, not exactly what we do. So semi-artificial photosynthesis is essentially we, th- we want to take a step back and we think, OK, how do plants do it? And actually, they have much better catalysts than we can develop in the lab. So they have these things called enzymes, which has evolved over billions of years. And they're much more selective and they're very efficient. And so we've been trying to use enzymes as catalysts and then and catalysts are things that sort of speed on reactions make them happen it'll make things happen that usually would take much 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 uh, longer if you don't have it happen so if you think of a can opener for opening cans something like that's like a a catalyst Uh, essentially so basically in semi-artificial photosynthesis we're we're extracting these enzymes from from nature and then we're wiring them up in different ways so this is not only a way of us trying to um i guess do something different to what people can do in the lab and trying to perhaps improve on it but it also allows us now to rewire natural photosynthesis in a way that um, no other fields can do so we can now study hypothetical reaction pathways that biologists can't do for example right so you're sort of going in between completely artificial and completely natural to find this sort of holy ground where you can do entirely new things exactly yeah exactly um and at the moment unfortunately we can't use this for anything practical because the enzymes when they're isolated they die quite quickly even though they're so efficient however what we found is that actually they can still work when they're inside of a cell so they've been constantly repaired and we can still wire them to other things and so what that means is that we can now say for example take some algae or cyanobacteria from your pond and put them on a conductive surface what we call an electrode and you shine light on it you get electricity so it's kind of like a biological solar cell and the fact that they can give electricity like this is a mystery in the first place so we're also trying to understand that brilliant so you just put it on this conductor and zap yeah exactly exactly and they you can see that they give off um some currents which is uh, yeah and we don't know how we don't know how exactly they do it and we don't even know why they do it so it's it's a grand mystery so it's an exciting one to try and tackle this problem brilliant and just stepping back a bit can you just sort of i know i did this in year 13 biology but please uh photosynthesis for dummies how does it actually work okay so step one is light absorption so we need something that can absorb light and step two the light energy is used to separate charges so it's used to rip um, electrons to remove electrons from somewhere and place it somewhere else Uh, And then the next step is to move those charges. So the electrons will be transferred to a catalyst and then the catalyst will use the electrons to form new bonds, to join things together. And so that's how we uh, make the bonds within sugar, for example. 
Right, and so apart from trying to persuade these can openers, these catalysts, not to die immediately, what challenges remain before this can be, uh, this can really change, start changing things? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's many things. So to start changing things, to be a game changer, we really need them, first of all, to last a long time. So similar to what you get in silicon solar cells, they last for 10 years. So we need at least year scales. And also we need it to be quite cost-effective so and scalable because at the moment we can get artificial photosynthesis to work at, at a very efficient rate. Um, unfortunately, those systems are uh, ex- extremely expensive because they, they use earth-rare materials uh, and so we need to make sure that we can use materials that are scalable and cheap. And so what sort of paint, if we solve these problems, how might uh, your technology uh, in my day-to-day life change things? Well, um, I think what it would mean is, well, first of all, it means that you don't have to always have centralised electricity so you can go off-grid a little bit uh, and be quite independent with that. Um, also, it's, it's a huge boost for the environment because then we can move away from carbon-based, fossil-based fuels. And so I think it would change things for the, the long run for the Earth. So it's a very positive impact in the long run. I hope so. Thank you very much, Jenny. No problem. Thank you, Jenny. Now, sitting next to me is uh, Richard Samworth, who is the director of the Statistical Laboratory, and also you run a stats clinic. Yes, I do. Uh, That's what I'm going to go and do after this uh, interview here. So the Statistics Clinic is something that uh, we run about once a fortnight. Anyone in the university can come along and receive free statistical advice. What sort of stuff do they come to you with then? Is it going to rain tomorrow? (laughs) More seriously, what do they ask you? Well, actually, one of the things I found really surprising since I started doing this is the sheer range of subjects that people come from different areas with. So you'd imagine that we get lots of people from the biological sciences, and we do, but we get a lot of people from the art subjects, so musicologists or linguists, historians. Pretty much any subject you can imagine that's studied within the university, we get people coming with their data and with their problems. Are they saying they want to try and pick apart a paper they've been sent to review or something, or are they saying they want to make sure they get their own research right and that they're not making claims that are flawed or something? Usually the latter, yeah. They, they, they come along with their data uh, and um, they want to know how to analyse it effectively um, to uh, draw appropriate conclusions from the data. Because you can, you can prove anything with statistics, can't you? Oh, yes, that's one of the things we have to deal with quite frequently. Certainly, it's, it's, it's very important that you uh, try and uh, use the right procedures for the, the appropriate situation so that you don't uh, end up in a situation where different people can make all sorts of conflicting claims. Has new statistics and statistical methods been invented alongside this tsunami of big data and the way that we're gathering data like we never have before and storing data and having information like we never had before? A- absolutely. That's what I spend most of my days trying trying to do um, it's definitely the case that a lot of the methods that we know and love that have been used for many years on, on relatively small data sets uh, either perform very badly or actually can't be used at all uh, in this brave new world of, of big data and that creates um, a lot of challenges but also opportunities for people like me to develop new methods that are uh, effective in, the, in this new sort of regime and that scale well to, to these uh, big data sets. What sorts of things? So one problem that, that people face in all sorts of different application domains is to decide which variables do I need in my model. 
so to give an example, I might be uh, studying a particular disease uh, with doing a microarray experiment. So a microarray allows you to measure uh, the gene expression levels of, of many thousands of genes uh, simultaneously. And I might w- well want to understand which genes are responsible for, for the particular effect that I'm observing. That, that would be what a statistician would call a variable selection problem. Um, and, and why is that difficult to grapple with normally? Um, because um, typically we have many more observations than, than we have variables on which we're making those, those observations. But uh, in, in the new world of big data, it's very often the other way around, uh, which means uh, we, we have very few replications of an experiment, but a lot of variables that might be relevant for, for the phenomenon under study. Um, and, and that creates a lot of statistical challenges. The other interesting thing is in sort of things like forensic use of numbers, isn't it? Because I, I remember l- re- reading for the first time about Benford's law, mm-hmm. and that really switched me on to the whole issue of how we can use numbers to actually unpick when things aren't quite right. Yes, so, so uh, Benford's law re- refers to the frequency with which different uh, digits occur in, in naturally occurring uh, data sets, and you can try to use that distribution to ascertain whether or not a particular data set has been fudged in, in, in some way. It's not something that I think people do very often, but in principle it is something you could do. And do you ever get horror stories where um, people turn up and you take one look at their data and go, oh my goodness, this is beyond redemption? Yes, it is sometimes the case that you don't really feel like you're doing a data analysis as much as a sort of post-mortem. Um, but... but you know, we, ju- we just do what we can. Uh, another thing I, I found about the clinic, though, is it, it's great training for my PhD students and postdocs. You, you, you never know who's going to come uh, walk, walk in and what problem they're going to present you with. So uh, you need people with a, um, a wide range of skills. And, and moreover, they have to be able to communicate their, their recommendations very effectively. You... you um, you very often need to tailor uh, the, the method that you would um, recommend to the statistical level of the person you're speaking to. And that's, that's another thing that I've really learned from, from running this clinic. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.